everybody. Welcome to a bonus episode of the Echo Leadership Podcast. My name is Andy Wood, and we're going to have a great conversation today. We've been looking at different entrepreneurs, business leaders here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Today's conversation is really fun for me. We're going to talk to Henry Kastner. He's a venture capitalist. I love getting inside the mind of venture capitalists because not only are they great leaders, but they're thinking about things that probably the average entrepreneur doesn't have to think about. So they lift our thinking. And Henry, he loves generosity. We're going to hear in this conversation about how he's learned to grow in generosity and how that growth has translated into his leadership. I think you're going to be blessed by this conversation. You're going to grow. You're going to be stretched. It's going to help you get better. It helped me get better. So I want to encourage you to listen in to this conversation with Henry Kastner. I'm here today with Henry Kastner. Welcome, Henry. Andy, it is great to be with you and your audience. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to have a conversation about leadership. Just a quick intro about Henry. Um, Henry is an entrepreneur uh, from a very young age. We'll hear some of his story of how he got started into entrepreneurship, a great leader. Um, He's founded multiple different companies. He founded a company called Bandwidth uh, that grew from scratch all the way to $400 million in revenue. Um, In addition to that, he's started a company or an organization called Sovereign's Capital that invests in Christian-related or kingdom-related uh, businesses that are that are focused on making a difference here on planet Earth. Um, he is a husband. He's a father of three sons. Um, in fact, his three sons and my son go to the same school. And uh, so I'm just thrilled to have you here on the uh, Echo Leadership Podcast with us. Andy, it's great being with you. A slight correction. I co-founded those things. I co-founded everything except that I am Kimberly's only husband. But all the different things that God's had me involved in, I've had some incredible co-founders. And this sounds like a throwaway comment, but all these guys and gals are are better than I am at what I do. But uh, yes, I've been involved in all those things. So directionally, you're right. That's good, man. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Just in case any of your co-founders are listening. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I'd love to um, kind of go uh, to that entrepreneurship uh, conversation because I know uh, you, since I've had the privilege of knowing you and uh, through our conversations, I've heard of you even continuing to start uh, different initiatives and organizations. And I know even you you have a podcast that you do, faith-driven entrepreneur, faith-driven investor even. Um, so talk a little bit about that entrepreneurship gene and when you first realized that you're an entrepreneur. Uh, that's a great question. So I discovered my first love when I went to college. I think a lot of people do. It's just that my love was the fact that I knew that I could take a t-shirt and make it for five and sell it for 10. And I've never been great at math, but I could do that math, and I loved it. So I sold T-shirts, lacrosse T-shirts, door-to-door at the University of Delaware starting in 1987, beginning part of 1988, and then said, gosh, if if I can do this, maybe I could have some other people do this for me and pay them $2 a shirt, and gosh, if we can do this after a couple more weeks, if we can do this here at Delaware, maybe we can do that at some other schools. And by the time I got out of college, uh, we had sales teams of one form or another in about 50 universities and also had a, um, had a um, business called College Design Group that made tie-dye boxer shorts, of all things. And they were sold in stores like Urban Outfitters back in the late 80s. Urban Outfitters had our tie-dye boxer shorts. And back then, this is how messed up fashion is. Uh, back then, it was actually women, girls, who would wear the tie-dye boxer shorts as cover-ups for their bathing suits. So we didn't sell them to guys. 
And that's how messed up fashion was back in the 1980s. Big hair and just all sorts of weird things going on with boxer shorts. But yes, that's when I discovered my first love. Wow. I, I would love to um, double click on some of that. So uh, when you started this t-shirt business and it grew, so you were you were scaling your business before like the whole scaling phrase was the most common used word in business. Um, is that something you just like intuitively knew how to do or did you have a coach or a mentor or somebody uh, like helping you know how to do all that? Uh, great question. Um, so yeah, you're right. I don't think it was called scaling back then. It was just growing. It was, um, it's something that maybe that God put inside me, which is, um, more is better than less. And it's not always, it's not always, but with t-shirts, um, uh, it definitely felt like it was, but to be clear, you know, it, and this is one of the things that a lot of entrepreneurs and leaders see is what's the optimal pace of growth. Well, when you grow as quickly as you do, uh, as we, uh, uh, grew the t-shirt business. Um, there's some problems along the way and there's some things broken, some broken systems, you know, somewhere, some guy at Glassboro state still has 288 of my t-shirts and I never get a dime for him. Right. You know, there's all sorts of inventory problems ha- that you have. You have taxation problems. Uh, you end up having trademark infringement problems. And so if you grow too fast, if it, it becomes all about scale, uh, you can you can make some mistakes, and I did. To be clear, I did. And so when I was 20, I got sued, uh, and my dad said, "Listen, pal, you can plead naivete as I did at age 20, but when you're 21, you got to find a real job." And so I did. I went to go find a real job, but I loved I loved the thrill of growing. And just like, oh my goodness, so I can go ahead and I can pay somebody else $2 a shirt. And then I can go ahead and I can hire somebody at the University of Maryland. And I can pay them 50 cents sold for every shirt sold on their campus. They can sell their rep, uh, pay their reps $2. And then I only lose $2.50. I'm still making $2.50. And what happens if I go ahead and I make a little bit nicer shirt and now it's five and a half bucks, but maybe I can charge $12 for it. And just, I mean, it was just so much fun. And yeah. um yeah, I love that. You know, and I'll tell you, Andy, the last time I actually really knew what I was doing in life was back then. I was a good t-shirt sales guy. Everything I've done since then, financial derivatives, telecom, you know, uh, private equity and all those things, uh, that was the last time I actually really knew what I was doing. So you you do this and it grows and then you transition, but this entrepreneurial gene, like I think you said, you, I heard you say you had at some point went to New York and you were working uh, in the financial industry, but that, that, that entrepreneur passion in you was there. So how did that play out? Like when you're in New York city and you're on wall street, did you, were you going crazy? Were you driving your employers crazy at that point? (laughs) That's a fair question. I don't know. I, I, I think some of them I probably was, but you know, I moved to New York because my dad had challenged me this and I'm like, okay, well, I just saw the movie Wall Street, the original one with Michael Douglas as Gordon Gecko. And there's a character in the movie called Bud Fox and Bud Fox was dating Daryl Hannah. He had a, uh, an apartment with an exposed brick wall. He had a sushi maker, this incredible soundtrack. And I'm like, I want to be that guy. And that's the first sign, by the way, that something's wrong. And that is your first role model in life is Charlie Sheen. Who's the actor who played Bud Fox? That's a that's a bad sign. But um, Wall Street was exhilarating. But it's, it's so proverbial for people who end up uh, coming to faith and uh, later in life, as was the case with me. It just it showed just this God shaped hole in my life. And so a couple of things uh, happened there. One is it was difficult to work for other people, 
it was difficult not to be able to make the changes uh, that I wanted. I, I lasted one year at a place called Arthur Anderson, which used to be a big accounting firm, and then went and worked at Merrill Lynch. And I got a lot of autonomy, probably more than I should have gotten, but not as much as I wanted, right? And yeah. um, and so it was six years into that experience. And I'm like, you know what? I got to get back out. I got to do this on my own. And I saw an opportunity to do that. And it just like the light switched on and it was like, I've got to do it. And it never really became a question. Um, but for six years, I was, you're right, I was, I was scrambling a bit. Now, I heard you say before, like in that period, as you're being successful financially, you're that gap of like, this is fulfilling me was widening. And it, you said the God-shaped hole was there. Talk yeah. about that journey of being more successful, but feeling empty inside and how eventually that you got some closure around that or maybe some fulfillment around that. Yeah. So if you're familiar with the movie, I mean, there's so much there to like. I mean, you're driving in nice cars and you're going to the nicest restaurants and you're dating all the pretty girls and you're living in a really cool apartment and, and all these different types of things. And as you watch the movie, you're like, oh my goodness, if I had that, that would be awesome. I'd be really happy then. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years later, you have it. You have it all. And you realize that this is something that is, uh, that I still have this longing for something else, but now it's much scarier because there's nothing else that can fill it because there's, you know, there's not another movie you can watch and say, oh, if I achieve that. And that's actually a really, really scary feeling when you're in your mid twenties and you thought you'd be happy if you had X, Y, and Z and you have X, Y, and Z, and then you're not happy. And it caused a very serious chapter of anxiety in my life. Right after, actually, right after I met um, uh, my other, my, you know, I talked about my love being t-shirts and that's not the case. My love other than God now is Kimberly, my wife, my beautiful, awesome wife. And she was the Daryl Hannah. And right after seriously dating her, I had this massive anxiety that was debilitating. I took a couple of weeks off of work and um, I knew something was wrong, and, but I couldn't figure out what. I had everything. And it was really, really, really troubling. And I uh, ended up getting uh, some counseling. I went to, uh, went to a great guy that helped me to just understand, just kind of walk through really what my priorities were and what I was really trying to reach for. He didn't help me to uh, understand a faith system anymore, but just helped me to just kind of get to this place where I could go back to work and start flourishing and work again. But it still was something was lingering. I mean, mm -hmm. if you think that age 25, if you have X, Y, and Z, you can have everything. Um, uh, and you can, you can go ahead and you can stabilize that but you can't really find the real, or I couldn't find the real peace and happiness until I found something greater, which is why do I exist? Who created me? What am I supposed to live for? Mm -hmm. And as I was able to answer those questions, as uh, Kimberly and I moved to North Carolina to set up a firm in the financial services, financial derivative space, um, a friend of mine had said, hey, you should go check out this church. And Kimberly and I were not opposed to going to check out a church. We grew up culturally Christian, went to church on, on holidays. I even went to Sunday school for a while, but it was very liberal Christian tradition that really never helped me understand about Jesus. Um, but we were going to go visit this Presbyterian church, which is, you know, I had grown up going to a Presbyterian church. But this guy who was preaching that day, and this is 1998 now, 1998, this guy, David Bowen, he was preaching. He's given the sermon as if he believed the Bible was true. 
I'm like, that is really weird. I mean, how can this guy who's clearly confident, articulate, and intelligent actually believe that the Bible is true? Everybody knows that this is just some sort of like a kind of a mythology document type of thing. But to, you know, preach authoritatively as this, well, of course this is true. I'm like, well, no, of course it's not true. And so I thought to myself as I'm kind of wrestling with this over a series of long runs, I thought, you know, I could get up to heaven and St. Peter's there for the entrance interview. He's like, all right, Kastner, while you're on on earth, you read like a thousand books and you never cracked the cover of the best-selling book of all time. Can't let you in. Like, oh my goodness, it can't go down like that. I got to get this Bible. I got to get the Bible. And so I got a Bible and, you know, you're a pastor of a church. You have, well, you're well aware. Many of your listeners are probably well aware of how many pages there are in the Bible. I'm like, I can't do this. But the end part, the New Testament, I'm like, ah, that's like the cliff notes. And I knew enough that that was the Christian part. And I was a cultural Christian. I'll read that. So I, I read through the New Testament. And actually, uh, in reading it through, it took me further away from faith. And I'm like, oh, my, this, you know, these exclusive faith claims. I mean, it's the narrow gate. And, and it's like this Jesus, he's got like this God complex. As it turns out, for very good reason, right? <laughs> he is God. Before Abraham was, I am. I mean, you know, he is God. And it was through reading it, but I was transfixed by it. And reading through it a second time, it, it hit me. The Holy Spirit hit me. God's word spoke to me. God spoke to me. And I'm like, you can't make this stuff up. And if it's true, it changes everything. And it did. Mm-hmm. It changed everything. Now, all elements of um, my anxiety didn't go away, but like 70% of them did. And then over the course of the next 25 years, as I've, I've grown in my faith and come to understand this God and, and who he is and how much he loves me, and I see it happen. I'm an investor now. I invest in pattern recognition. I can see when I'm in line with God's plan for my life, when I'm in line and I'm spending time with him in prayer and in his word. And I can see the joy and the truth that comes from that. And so I want more and more of it. And it's been amazing. It's been a wonderful thing. And it's, I know it's proverbial and cliche. Some of your listeners are like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that this podcast is going to get so holy roller. But that's, my, that's absolutely my experience is that I had a God-shaped hole. It's been filled. It doesn't mean I live a perfect life by any stretch, but I have a sense of meaning and purpose now that I surely didn't have before. Mm. Well, what what I love about your story is I do believe that that passion, which is deep inside of your soul to make a difference, to win, to be successful, that that's there from God. God made you that way. And when we, when we go down that path and we are successful, but we do it apart from God, there's an emptiness that we experience. Mm. And I think that there's, probably so many people that are listening to this podcast that you you've been successful. You've maybe you you've accomplished your career goals and you're only 30, 35 years old. And the answer is not, it's not more on the outside. It's more on the inside. It's more of perfect God's purpose and his plan for your life. And when you experience that, it changes everything. And I, I would love for you to unpack once you kind of made that shift and you understood your why and you had purpose and you began following Jesus. Um, how did that shift uh, the way that you went about your work and the way that you went about entrepreneurship? Well, um, at first it was a very black and white thing. So I had a firm that was um, uh, broking institutional energy derivatives among the big traders on Wall Street and in Houston. And a big part of that business is entertaining people. And there's, uh, there's too much of that that I felt was now incompatible with my new Christian faith. And so I'm like, I got to sell the business. So I sold the business. Um, 
And, uh, and actually, to, to be clear, I had a partner in the business who had been a lifelong Christian and was fine with the nuance and was able to be able to say, these are different things I'm not going to do because my faith tells me this, but I couldn't even be anywhere close to it. Um, and so it changed the way that I thought about creating, but it changed really, I, I guess, and in, in, um, in, in since then as my faith has matured, I've seen how my original partner stayed with it. Now he's able to be faithful within the business and he just left, you know, 20 years on. But for me, um, I was on fire now. I really wanted, uh, I really believe that there's an opportunity to, to have a, uh, to be consistent in my faith. And I felt like I needed to start over. I just need to start over. I need to set up a business that had the cultural values that were not consistent with the, my new worldview. And I met a guy who became my best friend and business partner, David Morkin. And David had also been a lifelong believer. And we said, and this is 1999 when we got together, said, okay, so what does it look like to start a new business and have these foundational values of faith first, then family, then work, and then fitness, the four things that were really important to us. And so we sat down and, and we talked about what that would look like and how do we go ahead and create in a way that, that bore witness to the creator? And how could we do that with gentleness and respect? How do we do that in a way that wasn't over the top? And um, that gave me a sense and gave him a sense of meaning and purpose. That was really important because if I'm honest, um, not all aspects of telecom bandwidth is a telecommunications firm. And through the grace of God, it's done super well. Not all aspects of telecom get me really fired up. Mm-hmm. But when I see it and he sees it as a vehicle to be able to create, because we're creating the image of this creative God. And so we see an opportunity to create and to solve a problem and to lean into an opportunity. It becomes a holier ambition mm-hmm. than just as a vehicle just to make money. When we see it as an opportunity to create a culture where thousands, mm-hmm. where we can impact thousands of employees' lives and vendors and partners and, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of customers, now, all of a sudden, you've got a sense of meaning and a purpose that really gives it just a joy, uh, brings a joy into the work and gives a meaning of community and fellowship and values uh, to all that are involved in that. And, um, and that's just a really special thing. So in a, in a nutshell, it's um, it, my new faith helped shape my entrepreneurial career because I could see it as my, my worship, mm-hmm. my worship. There's this guy who loves me. He gave me this son to die for me. And I, as I internalize that, which I still do such an imperfect job of doing, but as I reflect on that, then I get to respond out of gratitude, out of worship with all that I have. And God made me an entrepreneur. He made me a risk taker. He made me want to create and do things like that. But when you find that, and now all of a sudden, your entrepreneurship career becomes an act of worship. Now that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Now even telecom can sound really interesting and really creative and really exciting. Yeah. So that's how it changed. It became, it went from kind of like I had this kind of like black and white image, make money. That's what entrepreneurship can give you. And I was living a life in black and white. And then all of a sudden I had this new sense of meaning and purpose to the work I was doing. And now all of a sudden I was living in Technicolor. Wow. And I love how you structured the whole company around that too. So mm-hmm. you brought those values. And so you had faith, family, work, and fitness And one question that I was thinking about, so you probably had a lot of people at all different places in their journey spiritually in your company and still do. Um, And how did that translate? I know even now there's increased levels of hostility uh, that a lot of Christians experience in the workplace. And I know for people who are listening that maybe are followers of Jesus, 
sometimes it feels like I can't talk about my faith at my workplace. So mm. how did that translate? Like you're actually saying this is a part of the value system of the organization. It is, it is. And uh, to be clear, um, at Bandwidth or Republic Wireless or any of their Sovereign's Capital, uh, it was a little different Sovereign's Capital because we're a fund that invests in faith-driven entrepreneurs. So we have all, all of our employees are driven by their faith. But to be, clear, to be clear, at Bandwidth and Republic Wireless, you hire the best person for the job. Now, you don't shy away from your values, and you talk about faith being important, but to the person who's coming on board, you don't say, the Christian faith has to be your faith at all. It's just that as you have faith, faith is the most important thing to us as the founders, and we want to create a culture where faith is valued, and we understand that faith is more important than, than work. Mm-hmm. So again, faith, family, work, and fitness in that order. And... um you know, when you talk about uh, just just being persecuted, persecuted is not the right word, but uh, criticized in the in the marketplace because of your faith, I think that there's some safeguards against that. So uh, the Bible tells us that we're to share the reason for the hope we have with gentleness and respect. Well, gentleness and respect comes out of being in relationship. And so um, it's important for us to be in relationship with the people that we share our faith with. Uh, but the other thing that happens, and it, so it's, you know, it, it's, you know, understanding you, Andy, Andy, what gets you fired up? What are the things that are really important to you in your life? Tell me about your story, right? That's that's relationship. Now, when you're founders of a company, you get to take one other step, which is to have your new employees uh, come in and to hear the founding story. Mm-hmm. Hear why you started what you, you do. You know, Simon Sinek has got this great TED.com video. I think it's the second most watch, which he talks about the why of leadership. And um, as an entrepreneur, you have this opportunity about being able to talk about why you do what you do, and that can be compelling. You need to be able to present it in a way that doesn't feel prescriptive or presumptuous, but people want to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And I think, by the way, that most, I think that many Christian entrepreneurs don't understand that, and mm-hmm. it puts them at a disadvantage to their secular counterparts. Here's what I mean. You can talk to a Steve Jobs, or you could have talked to Steve Jobs, or John Mackey at Whole Foods, or a whole bunch of different entrepreneurs, and they can talk with articulation and passion about why they do what they do, right? It's to redeem the wholesale food chain, or you know, it's to make a make a tablet computer that blends technology with form and function and beauty and all those things. They can talk with fluency about the things that are really the most important thing for them. But too oftentimes, Christians say, you know, gosh, I don't want to be criticized for my faith, and... Um, I don't want people to think I'm some sort of holy roller. I, I don't want to be over the top. I want to be winsome. So I just, I'm going to just kind of keep it on the down low. Well, they're missing an opportunity to talk to their employees about the thing that drives them. That's the most important thing to them in their life. And what it comes across to an employee is this kind of like a dissonance. Like, mm-hmm. I think that the leader I'm following is passionate about something. He hasn't exactly talked about what's the most important thing to him in his life. And there's this dissonance that I think can and uh, that can lead just up just to questions about what makes this guy tick, or you know, I, I think he's a Christian, but maybe you know he's just doing the business as a means to the end because he really wants to leave at six o'clock because he wants to volunteer at Young Life. No, you need to be able as an entrepreneur, as a leader, to be able to share your story and why you do what you do in a way that's non-prescriptive or presumptuous. And the, the, you need to do it. You got to call it out and say, "Listen, I want to tell you the story of the founding of the company and my story." Not because it needs to be your story, but because it impacts the place you work at, right? Mm-hmm. We started this because we feel that when we create, we feel God's pleasure. 
Our faith here at Bandwidth for the founders is really important to us. It's what drives us. It's the why of what we do. Now, we're not going to presume that that's your why, but you need to know that founding story. So we, you're going to find here at Bandwidth that we're going to be able to, we're going to encourage people um, as they, uh, as they uh, lean into their faith, as they uh, love on their family. Um, and then, you know, fitness is number four. It's not as important as work, but it's still really important at Bandwidth. We can get into that later, maybe. I, one of the things I also have heard you talk a lot about is work ethic. And I would presume that you would say that work ethic is also a part of that for followers of Jesus and anybody that wants to influence that we, we lead out with what we model. And so when people see our lives and how hard we work, that should actually probably be another thing that is a testimony or yeah. uh, a part of our story that people see. Yeah. Francis Schaeffer once said, I'm paraphrasing him a little bit because I've forgotten the exact words, but directionally it's along these lines. It's to, to, it's to the degree we do our work well that we have an opportunity to witness and be heard. Mm. If we are a mediocre analyst, if we're a mediocre vice president, if we're a mediocre CEO, if we're not really great and world-class, then we have a mediocre opportunity to share our faith. But if through God's grace and under his power for his glory, we get out there and we crush it, and we can bear witness to why we do it and how we're able to do it. Now we have a world-class ability. If Elon Musk I mean, just think about the influence that anybody has. I mean, I'm not introducing anything that's revolutionary. People understand how much influence leaders have. But I do think that the average Christian leader in the marketplace misses that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And because they've been taught that there's a secular spiritual divide and they miss the opportunity to talk about their why. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that more and more of them lean into it. That's really good. And, you know, what, one of the things I, I love, too, about your story is you talk about how generosity makes a difference. And when somebody looks at the life of, of a human and they see generosity, it's attractive, right? And it, it pulls people in. I know yeah. you had some, almost like what you call this second wave of being born again in terms of generosity. Talk a little bit about that journey of generosity for you and how it changed you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I call it my born again, again moment. So um, I came to faith at 28. At 38, I met a guy named Daryl Heald. Um, at that time, bandwidth was starting to become successful. Kimberly and I were giving away more and more money. And we were at the time probably giving away about 20% of uh, the money we made. And it just a function that we, we uh, it just doesn't sound right, but we had a lot of money, which we were going to give. We felt like we should probably give it away. And I met this guy. Uh, Daryl, and uh, he heard about the different things that we were involved in, in Durham, North Carolina, where we were living at the time. And he said, that's really cool. So I get it. I think I understand what you're, what you're doing. He said, but Henry, tell me, why do you give? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I, we got a lot of money, or I may have said something theologically, like C minus, like, I don't know, I want to pay it forward, or something like that. And it's not like he graded my answer at the time. But uh, what did happen was over the next six months, one of the things I did learn, by the way, when I came to faith at 28, because the, the Bible had such a big, important role in my coming to faith, I committed to reading the Bible every day, and that, which means I read it probably 98 or 99% of the days. I rarely miss a day. But over the next six months, it seemed like every passage I read had something to do with money. Even the passages that didn't have anything um, to say about money, I've viewed as having something to do about money. I'll give you an example. You know, Jesus took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000. I'm like, oh my goodness, he actually doesn't need my money. I thought my role in the kingdom of God up until then was I make the money and then I give it away 
because missionaries and other people need it. Like, actually, if he doesn't need my money, he can take something out of nothing. He just wants my heart. And I realized up until that point in time, he had probably about 20% of my heart. Oh. And it changed, again, it changed everything. And when I, get an op- when I came to really understand that God owns it all, not just the 10% or the 3.5%, which is the average that, that people give, or the 20%, but when he owns it all, it freed me up in a way that's completely counterintuitive. You would think that if somebody said, I own your entire balance sheet, You'd walk out of that interaction like, oh my goodness, that's all. I just lost everything. But it sounds so cliche, but it, um, it was the exact opposite for me. As I came to understand, I'm like, I just gained everything. Wow. I love that, Henry. And I love how you now are trying to help other people with that too. And yeah. you started a, an or, another organization called uh, Give Bay Area. Is that right? Generosity Bay Generosity Area. Generosity Bay Area. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Generosity Barrier. The hope is that in five years, that everybody in the barrier will know a generous Christian. There's this guy named Rodney Stark who wrote this book called The Rise of Christianity. And when he wrote it, he wasn't a believer, but he was fascinated by just social movements. And so he went and tried to understand what was, what was the social context? What made the Christian church grow the way it did? And you know, it grew, by the way, in a pluralistic society. I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon the other day, just was kind of reflecting on it. It's just like, you know, it's a pluralistic society in Greco-Roman world. And at the time, you know, how do you have this new faith system that has an exclusive faith claim? How in the world does that do well in a pluralistic society? Well, the answer is that the, its adherents believed it so to be so true and so life-changing that they gave so generously, so much different than everybody else that everybody's like, what did they have? And so it's, you know, these are times in history where Christians, you know, well, so uh, maybe I told you before I went on the show, a favorite quote I have, the Emperor Julian writes his friend and he says, these Christians, they take care of their poor, which is this crazy concept. Nobody took care of anybody's poor. They take care of their poor and ours as well. What's happening is, is that people are leaving uh, newborn babies on the, on the doorsteps of Christians because they knew the Christians would love on them and they'd take care of them. In the Black Plague, it was the Christians that end up loving on them. You know, the Bible says effectively, you know, if, if all you have to lose is your life, if all that can happen to you is you die, that's nothing, right? It changes your whole risk reward. And uh, that becomes really attractive, especially as people are like, wow, they've got something I don't have. Then they look into it and then they have this, inter- this interaction with the living God and they have this same type of, hopefully same type of uh, reaction to it that I did which is, oh my goodness, this is actually true and it changes everything. And so the hope is that there might be a massive revival in the barrier that's led by Christ followers who are radically generous in what they do. They've leaned into why they give, how they give. They look to give together in community. They look to give together with excellence and they become known, Christ followers in the barrier become known for their radical generosity and not because out of reluctance or compulsion, they give with a joyful heart. That's our hope, a joyful community of generous Christians. It's so good. It's, it inspires and encourages me. And every time I see what God is doing through your life and I see your faith, I see your generosity, even your continued entrepreneurship, uh, it challenges me personally, Henry. And when I hear your story, even just kind of looking back over your life, it's like you've had 
multiple different awakenings. You had this whole movement of being successful, but then the awakening to that it didn't fully fulfill you all the way to the journey to follow Jesus, then living with purpose and on mission, and then and then this last awakening around generosity. And you are making a difference in so many people's lives. There's so many great things that are happening. I'd love for you to just point where where can people go to get more information about what you're leading, different websites that you would encourage them to check out. Well, thank you, thank you. First off, what you said was very, very encouraging. Thank you. Um, and uh, but the the specific answer to your question is so there's generositybayarea.org, uh, which you're kind enough to mention, and then uh, we've got a ministry called Faith Driven Entrepreneur faithdriventrepreneur.org and then a ministry called faithdriveninvestor.org faithdriventrepreneur before you go to faithdriveninvestor faithdriventrepreneur is a ministry to encourage equip and empower faithdriven entrepreneurs around the world business owners and entrepreneurs because it can be a really lonely journey you're out there and you're always selling something to somebody you're selling to customers you're selling employees to join you're selling employees to not leave you're selling your wife you come home from work and she you know you, she says how to go and you're like it went great when it didn't go great because she think you know she, maybe you fear that she thinks you never should have left that great job at Intel, right? And so it can be a lonely experience, but we're a community of Christ following uh, business owners and entrepreneurs that just get all into the call to create and our identity in Christ, excellence, ministry, word, ministry, indeed. We do that through blogs and podcasts and and conferences, and we've got a marketplace, a whole bunch of neat things going on there. On the faith-driven investor side, there's a whole bunch of people in the Bay Area and then around the world that are endeavoring to understand how to store the assets and the resources that God has entrusted them with from philanthropy, but all the way through, especially into investing, which is how do I think about investing in private equity in a way that's consistent with my faith that maybe I can invest in a company that actually has a chaplain or a faith-driven employee resource group. How do I think about that? So we've got podcast interviews with Frank Chen at Andreessen Horowitz and Trey Stevens at Founders Fund. And just that's the hoot. We love doing that. And um, that's it. Generosity barrier, faith-driven entrepreneur, and faith-driven investor. Awesome. All right. I got one more question for you. Bring it. I know that you do a lot of coaching with entrepreneurs and you have conversations. What's the one thing that you are saying the most to entrepreneurs in this last 18 months or so as we've been journeying through COVID and the crisis that we're in? The one thing that I've been saying, gosh, is there one thing? It's a great question. Um, I think it's really leaning into it's really in, leaning into the why. You know, the entrepreneurs that I work with um, work as if they're trying to earn their own salvation. You know, when I was um, in the early days of bandwidth, having recently come to Christ, I had the passage from Luke printed out about to whom much is given, much is expected. You know, and the the other part of that story is that if you don't deliver, you're going to be beaten with many blows. And while that is in scripture, I think that it oftentimes is taken out of context. And I think that what the what an entrepreneur needs to understand and needs to be reminded of is what I need to be reminded of every day is that God loves me. And when he sees me, he sees his son. And I every day, again, need to receive the gospel again. It needs to be my identity. I'm a beloved child of God. He doesn't need bandwidth or Republic Wireless or Sovereign's Capital to do well to advance his kingdom. He gives me an opportunity to participate in what he's doing in the world. But when I lean into that, when I lean into this identity that actually doesn't need, I can't earn my own salvation. He doesn't need me to do anything. I get freed up to experience a joy that allows me to get over some of the anxiety that I might otherwise have of how COVID is messing up my life Mm -hmm. or how COVID is messing up the lives of millions of entrepreneurs in Africa 
when markets are closing down, right? God is sovereign. God is all loving, all knowing, and has a great plan. And if I can rest in that, you know, entrepreneurs do such a lousy job with Sabbath, such a lousy job. If I can rest in that, now I've got an opportunity to experience joy and do awesome work. But too oftentimes entrepreneurs get it wrong and they lead with the work thing, the work ethic thing first, and then they end up coming into Sabbath just exhausted. Mm -hmm. So Sabbath really needs to be a thing, I think. I think most entrepreneurs think Sabbath is something to do at the end of the week. I'm done. I'm depleted. I just got it. No, I think that Sabbath needs to be reframed and it needs to be the beginning. This is a time for me to just re-up with God to get energized and just, you know, lean into the week with just this, this new energy. And I, uh, that's what I, that's what I've been telling entrepreneurs. That's so good. So helpful. Well, I'm so grateful for you investing in us today. And this has been a fantastic episode. There's a lot here. We could probably even do a double click. I didn't even get to ask you about parenting. I know that you are a fantastic father. Uh, so maybe we'll have to schedule another time to have you back on. Thank you so much, Henry, for this time and investing in us today on the Echo Leadership Podcast. Andy, I'm grateful. Thank you very, very much. What a fantastic conversation with Henry. I hope it encouraged you. I hope it helped you get better as a leader. If you found this helpful, we want to encourage you to subscribe, share it, like it, comment on it. Let us know how we can continue to help you get better as a leader. Thank you again so much for being a part of this community, the Echo Leadership Tribe, entrepreneurs, business leaders, church leaders here in the Bay Area, all over the country. We look forward to continuing the conversation. We'll see you on the next episode of the Echo Leadership Podcast.